All right, today we're going to look more specifically and we'll see um, an answer to one of the questions that Gene asked in this song is, uh, why is it that we hurt each other? We're going to look at uh, verses 21, 22, and 23 of chapter 1 in uh, the, the book of Colossians. It's a powerful uh, passage. Uh, Lord willing, next week we'll move on into verse 24 and following. And just to give you an idea uh, what we're up against there, you might want to underline uh, the same word three times. If you look uh, in verse 27, which we read together this morning, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. You might want to underline the word mystery there. He also uses the same word again in verse 26. If you look at it, verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And then in chapter 2 and verse 2, the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul, as we've seen, uh, was not reluctant, even though he was in prison, he was not reluctant to take on the intellectual ones, as Barclay describes the Gnostics. And if they were going to have their mystery religion, he was going to proclaim to them the ultimate mystery, which... Uh, has been revealed, which is Christ. So that's where we're headed, but today we're going to be focused on verses 21, 22, and 23. Look, I think a a good way of, um, of outlining this passage is this. Uh, first of all, in verse 21, we have the Colossians' former state. Look at it again, verse 21. And you who once were, so he's talking about what they were in the past, once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Pretty good description, isn't it? Uh, And then verse 22 is their present state. He has now, you might want to underline the word now. So this is their present state. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to. You might want to underline that phrase, in order to. Anytime you see in the New Testament those three words, in order to, those are what I call master verses in the Bible. They uh, reveal God's hidden purpose. Uh, Again, Deuteronomy chapter 22, the last verse of Deuteronomy chapter 22, I think, is that Moses says, um, the secret things belong to God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children. So there is, um, God is under no obligation to reveal everything to us. Uh, Enough has been revealed to us, trust me, We know enough right now. Uh, I know enough right now to condemn me for eternity. But God 
is under no obligation to reveal all of his ways and purposes. And so if you are a God follower, one of the ways of discerning um, God's purposes in the earth is when you come across that phrase, in order to, or in order that in the New Testament, uh, you need to make note of that because you are being uh, ushered into uh, the riches of all knowledge and wisdom, which is in Christ. Look at it again, verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now, this is contrasted with verse 18, uh, where Paul says, he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, uh, uh, the firstborn from the dead. He's the head of the body of the church. So there is, uh, we need to maintain the distinction here the body, which is the church, is different from uh, his body of flesh, which um, Paul is very careful, and in particular, militating against those people who said that Christ wasn't really a man, that he was a phantom, that he appeared to be, he was ghost-like. Um, Paul is very deliberate in in this phraseology here. So there are, in some senses, there are two bodies here that Paul is talking about. The body, he's the head of the body, which is the church, but then there is his body of flesh that by his death in the body of flesh, he has now reconciled in order to present you, um, here is your provenance, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's pretty good. Ain't nobody else can do that for you but Jesus. So there we have Colossians' former state and now their present state. And then in verse 23, we have an important caveat or a condition. And verse 23 starts with that small word, if. You might want to underline that. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The hope of the gospel. That is... Uh, what has allowed us to go to to be transformed from our former state to our present state. So you can see it very clearly here, our former state, our present state, and then an important uh, conditional caveat. So let's take a look at this, their former state. Look at it very simply. Paul says, you were... Um, alienated. Then he goes on. He doesn't leave it there. You are alienated. Then he said, you are hostile in mind. That alienation and hostility resulted in what? Doing evil deeds. I like Hendrickson's translation of this verse. He says, and you, and of course, um, in Missouri, when we want to 
make sure that people understand we're talking to what the Southerners would say, y'all. In Missouri, we say the plural for you is use. Now, that's not correct English. The plural for you is what? You. So in the Greek, it's not that way. They have it. They have a different way of um, distinguishing between you singular and you plural. And so Hendrickson, is his translation, he puts spaces between the Y-O-U, uh, and thereby he's telling you as you read it that he's talking, that the text is saying plural you, not you as a singular individual, but you use y'all. All y'all, and you, who were once who who once were estranged and hostile in disposition. Ever try to live with somebody that you just can't get along with? As shown by your, and again, it, he does the same thing with the word your. He's talking about a group of people as shown by your wicked works. He in his body of flesh through his death has now reconciled. Now there's a great deal of technical discussion about uh, verses 21 and 22a. Um, it, it seems as though, and it's important for us to see that the conditional clause, the caveat, um, the, what we sometimes uh, call the buyer beware. You know, before you buy something, there's going to be a warning label on it. It's going to inform you there's certain conditions um, that apply to your purchase. Uh, right? How many of us have uh, bought a new mattress and we see that tag hanging on the bottom of the mattress and it says that if you remove that, you have broken federal law. And so we, ha we have that dilemma, right? We're like, I don't want to break the law, but that thing bothers me. I want to go get the scissors and cut it off right now. That, that is a certain condition that is applied to you or placed upon you when you bought that mattress. You're not going to cut that tag off because some policy wonk somewhere in the deep state came up with a rule or a reason for that uh, tag having to say, it tells what is in the mattress. So if, if you end up with a rash because you slept on the mattress for 20 years, you, you can uh, sue Barclay Lounger or whoever. So it's important for us to see that the caveat, the conditional statement comes at the end. In verse 23, verse 21 is a description of what we were. And there are some commentators who are saying that you cannot be reconciled until you do away with your alienation, your hostile disposition, and your evil deeds. And, of course, that is to misunderstand the hope of the gospel. 
Um, there, is, there is a sense in which it is true when we hear someone make the statement, God loves you just the way you are. And I follow that up usually by saying, because, because the gospel, the closer we get to preaching the gospel, the riskier it sounds. If we preach a safe gospel, one that encourages some degree of compliance on our part before Jesus says, okay, I'll save you. That's not really the gospel. The gospel is that this is how Paul puts it to the Corinthians, and, and they were a wild bunch, the Corinthian church. That, that, was the, that was the toughest church, I think, that Paul had to deal with. But he said, even while you were still alienated, hostile enemies to God, uh, Christ gave himself for you. So this is where legalism, and and we'll take a look at this verse, uh, this word hostility here, ekthran, it's only used twice in the pages of the New Testament. Here we find it used, used twice here hostile, uh, rather over in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll look at that in just a minute. But this is where legalism gets its foot in the door. You can't be reconciled because look at who you were. Look at what you did. Look at the life that you lived. And I want you to know we... we uh, we started in verse 9 of chapter 1, but look with me in the introduction to this. Here uh, in verses 3 through 8 in chapter 1, these are people that Paul has not met, but, but listen to the warmth of his greeting. He says in verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know what to do, you, you might want to underline the word always. If you don't know what to do, how to pray, what to say, Start with that. Thank you, Father. <laughs> it's just, if that's, if you can't think of anything else more to say, just say, thank you, Father. Uh, look around at your problem and say, thank you, Father, for this problem. Thank you, Father, for the strength you've given me to get through this problem. Thank you, Father. And pretty soon, the thank yous will just start tumbling out of you. It's, it's probably the only legitimate way for a Christian to begin their prayer. Not with the list, not with the problem, not with the tough difficulty, but start with the praise, start with the worship. Thank you, Father. We, Paul says, always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. See, it's very specific here. How should I pray? Well, start this way. If it worked, if it's good for Paul and Silas, it's good for you and me, right? If it worked for the Apostle Paul, if this is how he prayed, then I think it would be a good model for us. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you pray for you, since we heard of your faith, see, so someone else has told him the story of the church at Colossae. And he tells us who it is uh, when we get down to the end in verse 7. We pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints 
because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood, just not hearing it, it's hearing it and understanding it, heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let there be no doubt, the Apostle Paul didn't know these people, but it didn't keep him from loving these people. He'd heard enough to convince them that they heard and understood uh, the gospel, the gospel of grace, which was being fruitful, uh, bringing forth fruit in the whole world. So Paul has... He has no inclination at all when we come back to verse 21. He's not trying to put the Colossians on a guilt trip. He's not trying to tell them, look, um, uh, your salvation requires some human effort. It requires some uh, cooperation on your part. That's not his intention at all. He's saying, in fact, he is stumbling over himself, and I love this. Again, Hendrickson points this out. He's stumbling over himself, getting running past these things. You were alienated. You were hostile in disposition. You did all sorts of evil deeds, but now you are reconciled. Hendrickson says, uh, Paul was not unusual that before an idea had been fully expressed, it was already being crowded out by another. Then he says this, he had a fertile mind. It's going to be interesting in heaven. You know, we know the longest line will be the line like Disney, the line that wants to meet Jesus. But then it will be interesting to see whose line is longer, the line of people waiting to talk to the Apostle Paul or the line of people waiting to talk to the Apostle John. Or, and we'll throw Peter in there too. We can't, you know, the Catholics, obviously, they might, they might want to talk to the Apostle Peter. But Paul has this fertile mind. He's like, but let me get to what I really want to talk to you about, the fact that you have been reconciled. We already heard it in verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's stumbling over himself. So we've we've already noted that there are many similarities between the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians. Look with me over in the book of Ephesians, which is just a few pages to your left. Ephesians chapter 2. He does this in this text. Look, um, well, we really need to go back to the beginning of chapter two. You were, there it is again, past tense. This is what you were. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, past tense, right? Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is not working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. See, this is the past, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What's the next word? But, love that word. But God, but God, comma, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, past tense again, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us, there it is, we, we were acted upon by the will of another, made us alive together with Christ. And then he puts this, you see this qualifying phrase in there, by grace you have been saved. You see that? There's, a, there's like a long dash before it and a long dash behind it. It's because Paul's fertile mind again is stumbling over itself. This is re- really where he wants to get to. He wants to get to, for by grace you've been saved. And he can't help himself. It, he's thrown this phrase in there before he actually gets to it. It's a little bit, look, you can read it without that phrase made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. You see, it just flows along. But, but Paul, uh, his fertile mind is this, this is the gospel of hope. This is the gospel of Christ. You've, you've been saved by grace, not by works. That's the opposite of salvation by grace is salvation by works. You've been saved by grace. By grace, you've been saved. And he keeps going and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Then we come to verse 8. Read it with me. For by grace you have been saved. Then he elaborates on it through faith. This This is Paul's message. Salvation by grace through faith, uh, the doctrine of justification by faith. He, he can't get enough of it. And here, his fertile mind, he, he's, he, it, it comes out of him before he's really even ready. His pen is ready to write. It, it just shoots out of him. For by grace you have been saved. So, so and, and then he rewinds again, or um, he, he, he pauses, steps back, and takes another run at it. Look in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, here's the past again, what you were, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you, what? You were at that time separated from Christ. There's the alienation. There's the estrangement, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, you had to be uh, a descendant of Abraham to be within the family, the commonwealth of Israel. And as a Gentile, there was no way that you could qualify. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, Look, look, there's that word again, but, but now, 
not you hope to be. Um, when I was a kid growing up in church, we had one lady in the church who should have known better. But every time she got up to testify, she said that she hoped someday she would be able to hear her Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joys of the Lord. And as a kid, I was just like, is that all there is? Is that what is that what Christianity is? Is that you're just hoping that you did enough that would balance the scale that when you get to the pearly gates, Jesus would say, well, you squeaked on by. You just barely, well done thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of the Lord. You see, there is between us and the good news of the gospel, there is between us and God this active hostility. We, we are even uncomfortable when we hear the good news of the gospel. When we hear the, the gospel that says the only thing you contribute to your salvation is your sin, that irritates us. Because if we agree with that statement, we admit we've given up on ourselves. We've come to the end of ourselves, and we are now committing ourselves to live a life of vulnerability until Jesus comes or we die. I'm admitting that I am weak, without hope, no strength, can't figure it out, can't do it by myself. I need God to intervene if it and if God doesn't intervene in my life, I, I don't have a snowball's chance in hell of being saved. Hmm. Don't you wish that phrase was in the Bible somewhere? Maybe it will be. If the Lord tarries 500 years from now, they'll have an epistle, First Ellis. You don't have a snowball's chance. Of... But, but now, verse 13, but now, not... I hope when I get there, he'll say, well done. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were, there it is, there's the contrast again, what you were to what you are, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see that? So the, here, here the, not only is, are the themes uh, parallel in Ephesians and Colossians, but also, also many of the words are, are the same. Look, look at that. The, the, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. So there's no Jew, there's no Gentile anymore. It's a, it's a new man in place of the two, you see. So making peace and might reconcile us both, both Jew and Gentile to God in one body. See, see the message is the same through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You might underline the word hostility at the end of verse 14 and the word hostility at the 
end of verse 16. It is the word in the Greek, ekthran, E-C-H-T-H-R-A-N. It's only used uh, in, in that form in, in this particular passage. It's translated hostility, sometimes translated enmity. I was reading about this word, and there, there are a group of uh, insects that are known as synecthrans. Synecthrans. S-Y-N-E-C-T-H-R-A-N. Synecthran. Syn is the Greek prefix for meaning with. And what they describe are parasites. Parasites are, uh, well, in the insect world, let's take, for example, uh, beetles. There's a particular kind of beetle that will inv- invade ant colonies. And they've just recently discovered that this one particular, you know, ant colonies, they have soldier ants. And when the colony is invaded by an enemy, the soldier ants uh, sound the alarm and they go, they have these mandibles that can can crush, chew, decapitate, decimate their enemies. Well, this particular beetle has discovered how to enter uh, an ant colony and mimic the cries of the ants. The ants, instead of uh, sensing that this is an enemy, then because of what they've heard, they've even found these um, oh, kind of scales on the bottom of the of the beetle that uh, because they recorded these sounds and then <laughs> they buried a micro uh, a speaker in an ant colony and they played these sounds back and the the ants dug and dug and dug until they found that speaker because they thought it was their own ants who were in trouble uh, if you know what I mean if you're following me here. So a synecthron then is someone who comes in to the ant colony, plays like he's one of them, lays uh, his larvae in their prepared places, drinks their body juices from their larvae. When the beetle's larvae are hatched, the ants think that they're ants, You see what synecthron means? It means that there is a hostility that is present here. There has been um, a great charade that is taking place. You have been deceived. Now you think of this word, hostility. You and I live with this hostility every day of our lives because we're still fallen human beings. I I don't have my glorified body yet. I'm still fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And sometimes I'm tempted in, in God's world to gain entrance, to trespass, to pretend that I am something that I'm not. Hallelujah. To act the part to some, well, if, if, it, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, 
swims like a duck. I don't know what else ducks do, but then it must be a duck, right? So we can, we can fake it till we make it, but we don't, we don't want to admit that really there is, in our hypocrisy, we are living off the welfare of God's mercy. Jesus said, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. He said, you don't understand this. There is a common grace that God will let, let your beetle invade the body of Christ, live off the goodness of the body of Christ, the goodness, goodness of Christ himself and his death on the cross, but that hostility is still there. Go back and read the verse now again. What, what does Paul tell us? For, for he himself is our peace, verse 14, chapter 2 of Ephesians, who has made us both one and has broken down in his, there's no ants and beetles anymore, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's reconciled us both to God, verse 16, and in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, the solution, the, the question is raised in the song through Lent, is that all there is? The house burned down, I'm like, well, that was no big deal. Um, the boy I fell in love with, he went off, that was no big deal. Um, you say, well, I went to the circus and I was really expecting something great, that was no big deal. And I know what you're saying right now. You know, if you're that skeptical, if you're that miserable, if you're that cynical, if, they, if you're that sarcastic, why don't you just go ahead and just forget about living? And then the, the answer is, oh, no, 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 because I'd be disappointed in death too. You, you don't, really, you don't, you don't find a song that better communicates. Maybe send in the clowns. Maybe we'll do that next year. Um, you don't find a, a song that better communicates if you want to take a long, hard look at what life is and be honest about it. So ask the question, but the solution has been provided. We're, we're not just trying to get along with God. We're not just trying to be polite with God. We're not negotiating with God and say, God, if you treat me well, I'll treat you well. No, no, no. The solution is the hostility has been destroyed. What you once were, you are now something different. I hear it from people all the time. You know, we used to, remember they used to have that, um, you would invite people to church and the, People would respond, they say, well, when I get around to it, and then, then they made those round to it. It was a wooden, like a coin, and it, and it had on it a round to it. And then you were supposed to give it to the person and say, well, here's a round to it. Now that you've got it, you'll come to church. Well, I don't know how effective that, that was or not. But there are a great many people who say, you know what? I'm going to live for God once I get this figured out. I'm going to live, I'm going to uh, profess my faith in Jesus Christ and start doing the right thing 
once I get this difficult. You know what? Those people are at home this morning. Now they're home. I'm not saying everybody who's at home this morning is at home for that reason. But what I'm saying is when Sunday morning rolls around and all you got is verse 21, hostile, alienated, estranged, doing evil deeds, God only knows what goes on Saturday night, but Sunday morning's coming, but Sunday morning comes and goes and there is no impulse, there is no desire to be in the presence of God. You got, you've got to stir up your pure mind by way of remember. Remember what you were. Hendrickson uh, becomes even more vile. We're, we're still stuck on verse 21. He says, this state of estrangement was not due simply to ignorance or innocence. Some people use this as an excuse. You say, well, what about all the people who've never heard about Jesus? I don't know that anybody living in this country can use that as an excuse anymore. Well, I never heard about Jesus. There, there may be um, certain ethnic subcultures in the rest of the world where, where people have not, they tell us they are, there are people that have never heard the name Jesus at all. But in our country... I don't know that anyone ha- has the right to say, you know, I never knew, I never heard. Uh, nobody ever told me. It says, this, the state of estrangement was not due simply to ignorance or innocence. There are no innocent heathens. I, I tend to agree with Hendrickson on that, God has revealed, uh, Calvin says that God has revealed himself in the first book, which is nature. Uh, this goes along with what Paul says in the first chapter of the book of Romans. There are no innocent heathen. On the contrary, they were estranged and hostile in disposition. It was their own fault that they had been and had remained for a long time far off, for they had actually hated God. There, there is this enmity that exists between uh, the beetle culture and the ant culture. Moreover, he says, the inner disposition of aversion to God and antipathy or hatred to the voice of conscience, which formerly had characterized these Colossians, had revealed itself in wicked deeds, such as those that are very specifically enumerated, uh, very specifically enumerated in Colossians 3, 5 through 9. So uh, if you think that Paul is soft peddling here, he is not. Uh, years and years ago, I went through all of the, there are list after list in the New Testament authored by the Apostle Paul and others, uh, n- naming sin. I used to hear that from people. I want to go to a church where the preacher names sin. No, you don't. It's already in the Bible. It's there for you to read. And if the preacher does his job in preaching, um, exposing you to the text of the New Testament, then you should be familiar with. But, but just listen to this list. Look in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, 
uh, which uh, I'm still in Ephesians here. Let me work over to the right. Put to death, he says, verse 5. Here, here is our responsibility. This is the, this is, he invites our cooperation. He does not invite our cooperation in justification, but he does invite our cooperation in sanctification. It's important. Don't, uh, don't confuse the two. Justification happens only once. You can't be justified and then, oops, I lost my salvation. I got to come back to church and get re-justified. Once the judge says you're not guilty, guess what? You're not guilty. He declares you to be not guilty. You may be guilty of sin. They may not have been able to prove it. But once the judge declares you guilty, you can go out on the court steps and say, I did it. And because the judge declared you not guilty, you can't be uh, tried twice for the same crime, even if you admitted it. They might come after you for something else. He invites our cooperation and sanctification. Put to death. That's a command. Therefore, what is earthly in you? See, it's, it's still there. It's still there, except for a believer. It does not have that sentence of death forensically as far as the courtroom is concerned. I've dealt with that. The lawyer Christ Jesus, the advocate. We heard it this morning in the call, call to worship. If you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Here it is. In your life of sanctification, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, un. Uh, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two once we walk, walked, past tense, when you were living in them. Walk always has to do with sanctification. Living in the New Testament always has to do with justification. Justification is who I am. Sanctification is walking out what I learned in justification. These two, and these you two once walked when you were living in them, Colossians 3, 8, but now. You see that? that that's those uh, conjunctions in the New Testament. The word but. Um, I guess now, I don't know, I was not... I, I'm trying to remember Miss Cook's sixth grade English class now as an adjective or an adverb. I don't know. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's why it's important for us to establish from the beginning, Jesus Christ is preeminent both in creation and in redemption. What he created, what fell away from him, he has the right to redeem. 
We're going to rush through the, the end of this. Look, their present state, verse 22. Look at it again. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Look at it. They have been reconciled. Look, say this with me. I am holy. <laughs> yeah, I know. It doesn't, we don't have much confidence in that, do we? Say it again. I am holy. I am holy. Reconciled, holy, blameless, above reproach. Right now. Uh, this is actually a statement. I've got it attributed to Hendrickson, but this is actually Barclay. The next two slides, I would correct. I'll, I'll read this to you. The aim of reconciliation is holiness. Write that down somewhere in your heart. The aim of reconciliation is holiness. He tells us right here, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to, for the reason being, for the purposes of presenting you holy. The aim of reconciliation is holiness. Once Christ carried out his sacrificial work of reconciliation in order to present us to God consecrated and irreproachable. Berkeley goes on to say, it is easy to twist the idea of the love of God and to say, well, you know, if God loves me like this and, and wishes nothing but reconciliation, then sin doesn't really matter. I can do what I like and God will still love me. But in another sense, he says, it makes things agonizingly and almost impossibly difficult. I love this. This is why, uh, you know, there are a lot of reasons why um, we don't have more people that come to this church um, than we do. There's a, there's a lot of reasons, a multitude of, of reasons. Um, but this is one of the dilemmas for a a child of God, is I, I didn't deserve to be loved to begin with. And then I kind of heard the gospel and I accepted that to be true. But now it has delivered me into a state where I'm still struggling with that, that hostility is, is still it's still a struggle. It wears me out. It wears me out to go to church and to be reminded of that hostility. It wears me out when the preacher starts preaching like this long, when he get, he's prolip, prolips, long, and he's, and he's not, he's more, getting at where the rubber meets the road than he is in inspiring me. A lot of people will come to church for a while and they will stop coming to church. I've seen it over the years because they don't want to face that agonizing dilemma every Sunday. And you will, Paul says the object of this, let, 
Let no one disqualify you. I am toiling and struggling with his energy within me that I might present you mature in Christ. That means you got to grow up. But in another sense, Barclay says it makes things agonizingly and almost impossibly difficult for it lays upon us this ultimate obligation of seeking to be worthy of that love. I think that's probably the number one reason why people drift away. They've heard the gospel, they've believed the gospel, but now comes this work of sanctification that says, I have got to put to death those things because those things do not characterize someone who is worthy of Christ's love, the object of Christ's love, which I am. Believe me, it's easier just to let the Beatles in. Just live with it. The ant colony will continue, it will continue to thrive in some degree, and yes, we've got this problem, but let's just just have a truce with the devil, have a truce with the flesh, have a truce with my old life. And the world looks on and said, you you people are nuts. You, you You have created some kind of fictional narrative in which you think you are holy, in which you think you are irreproachable, in which you think this hostility has been removed from you, but you're just like us. And then comes the excuse of, well, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want, you know what? I'm not a hypocrite. So I'm going to stay away. I'm going to stay at home. I'm not going to associate myself because, you know, there's just the, the church is just full of hypocrites. You know what? The whole world is full of hypocrites. I haven't met a person yet who isn't a hypocrite, including you. We all got something to hide. We all got something that we're, we're like, oh, no, 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 let, no, let's not. Uh, let's not get into that. All right, could, could you just be, could you just deliver the Joel Osteen to smile at teethy, toothy sermon this morning? Just say that God loves you and so do I. Everything's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. Just try to get along with each other. And Jesus, Jesus is our sociological Southern, you know, don't want to make trouble, Jesus. Can't we all just get along? And the answer to that question, if we're honest, is no, there, there is, I have a hostile disposition. So now we come to the caveat in verse 23. Look, if, he says, if, if indeed, Look at this. If you continue in the faith, if you continue in the faith, if you are stable, remember a few years back we did that whole thing, Benedictine spirituality on the Latin word stabilitas. Stabilitas, when I feel like running, when I feel like 
getting away. The the important characteristic of a mature child of God is no, 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 stable, steadfast. If you continue in the faith, if you are stable, if you are steadfast, and then I kind of qualified this last one, if you're not shifty. <laughs> Paul says, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. See, it all has to do with the hope of the gospel. Now, we don't want to hear this, but here it is. Divine preservation always presupposes human perseverance. I know people who said, well, I went, I went to the altar when I was five years old and I got saved. Um, they have no f- fruit in their life. They never go back to church again. Sometimes we hear this, the once saved, always saved. That is not the same as the final perseverance of the saints. If you are a child of God, you have this energy in you that Paul talks about. Look, he, he ends with it in the last verse of chapter one. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's still a struggle, but it's all his work. Perseverance proves faith's genuine character and is therefore indispensable to salvation. I love this quote by Dallas Willard. And if you haven't written it down somewhere, you've heard me say it before, but it's perfect. He says this, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. So if you think you're earning points with God because you're working hard, you are going to be disappointed. That that whole story of the workers in the vineyard, Matthew chapter 22, the people that went out and worked for an hour got the same pay as the people that worked all day, 12 hours, and the people coming in for what they had agreed on 12 hours when they heard that those people that only worked an hour, got a whole day's pay. They're coming in to get their pay, and they just figure, well, you know, we're probably going to get more then. He's given the person, you know, $15 an hour, and he's given them times 12, $180 for working just one hour, then maybe he's going to give us some more. And the owner of the vineyard says, can I not do with my own what I want? Yeah, but... That's not right. Didn't you agree with me that you would work 12 hours? $480? And if I, if I want to be generous, that's what grace is. If I want to be gracious and give those no good scallywags who worked only an hour the same pay $180, what is it to you? Well, then I could have slept in with the rest of them. Just showed up late for work and got the same pay. You see how deceptive the human mind is. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. But when you think that you deserve something because of what you've done, that's when you're in trouble. 
I love this. Earning is an attitude. It's the attitude of hostility. I hate my job. I don't want to be here. I'll only do the minimum what's necessary. I don't like anybody on the job. I'm not going to smile. I'm not going to be conversant. I'm not going to be pleasant at all. That is the ad- that is the beetle invading the ant colony. Effort is an action. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. And you have to understand Dallas Willard and the whole corpus of work and where he was coming from to really grasp what the statement is. But, but, but look, look at that. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. If God, if Christ is in you, he is an active, dynamic force in your life. So there we have it. What we were, what we are now. Careful. Don't don't cut that warning thing off the mattress too quickly. Here's the caveat. Here's the warning. The hope of the gospel. Reconciliation, Barclay, and I close with this, demands that through sunshine, And through shadow, we should never lose confidence in the love of God. Out of the wonder of reconciliation are born the strength. Here it is. Out of the wonder of reconciliation. Here, I I have to ask myself the question, am I a worthy object of God's love? I know that he loves me. I know that by his death on the cross, he has reconciled me to him. Now as I'm walking this out, as I'm putting to death, am I every day a worthy object of his love? Out of the wonder of reconciliation are born the strength of unthinkable, unshakable loyalty and the radiance of unconquerable hope. Thank you, Father, that in all things you have the preeminence. It was said of your son, he went about doing good. Even today, he invites us not to be perfect, not to be flawless, not to be so intellectually powerful that we're just right all the time, right all the time, right all the time. No, 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 no. That's not his school of philosophy. He holds a yoke and he says, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy. The yoke, an instrument of movement, an instrument of walking. He says, you take your place on the yoke, and I will take place on the other side, and we're going to walk this thing out. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Come and learn of me. You're not calling people who are walking perfectly. You are calling people to be yoked up with you. And you will teach us, Father. You will teach us through our yokeship with your son. You will teach us, Father, how to walk. 
that gospel light shine so clearly in our lives. It humbles us. Makes us want to be worthy children of our Heavenly Father. Help us now as we prepare our minds, our hearts, our spirits, our hands to receive your body and your blood, Lord. Strengthen us. Baptize us with renewed vigor and determination. We ask it in Christ's name.